You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Today we're in a different location in the Tucson area. We're actually on the bank of the Tancaverde Creek, an area on the eastern side of Tucson. We're at the home of a friend, Donna and Bob Swaim. Donna is a colleague at the university and they've let us use their lovely property for our work today. The area we're in has around us a variety of vegetation. There are desert broom bushes, there's desert willow. In the distance you can see some cottonwood trees. In the far distance are the Catalina Mountains. The Santa Catalinas are one of the four ranges that surround Tucson. Those mountains go up to 10,000 feet and at the top are aspens and firs, much as you'd find in the Rockies. We're actually in the middle of what is called a mesquite bosque. There are mesquite trees that surround us here. And this riverbed or creek bed is dry now. Most of our creeks in Tucson are dry most of the year, except during the rainy season when this will fill up with water. But there's actually water beneath the ground. There's an aquifer down there. And these plants have adapted to be able to use the presence of the water beneath the ground to feed themselves, to nourish themselves during the year. The mesquite trees that we see in the distance, for instance, all have large tap roots that go down into that aquifer and draw that water up to them so they can survive in this arid climate. Now we've been talking over the last few days about the roots of modern biology, about its philosophical roots, about its scientific roots. We've sort of gone over now how modern biology came into the present, especially how modern biology developed a theoretical basis and a language. You remember that I said physics had a theoretical basis that was Newton's laws of motion and had a language, mathematics, that Newton actually enriched by his development of calculus. Well, modern biology has a theoretical basis of sorts, although it's not as predictive, we would say, as perhaps the Newtonian laws were. Our theoretical basis is, of course, evolution, the fact that all the species we see have some commonalities in them. There are some predictive qualities to that that one can use. And as I've tried to develop for you, the language of biology now is the language of molecular biology, the idea of information flow in the biosphere, information flowing from DNA to RNA to protein. This language, this information, actually has its own set of signs and symbols. The signs and symbols being the bases, A, G, C, and T, that represent the sequence in DNA and the abbreviations for the amino acids that make up the protein products of the genes. So we have a language now that we can incorporate into this theoretical basis to come to some common kind of, we'll say, mature science, perhaps, for biology. Now, as I've made this case for biology, I've alerted you to the possibilities of some philosophical and perhaps even ethical, as we'll come to in a moment, problems that derive from this. But I don't want you to think that the achievements of modern biology are all of the negative kind. Modern biology is a wonderful adventure, we'll say, of the human mind. Just simply the establishment of this paradigm, this paradigm of the gene as the information in the living systems with which we share the environment, that all of these systems around us have as a commonality the idea of a gene. That paradigm alone would be worth the adventure. 
Beyond that paradigm, there are the practical aspects of these discoveries. The idea that by knowing how gene expression works in all of these systems, we can actually say something about the human condition, and then maybe even, as we'll see in a moment, have some practical effects on what we call the human condition. So we have a paradigm, we have practical discoveries that come from this, and we just have the wonder of understanding how living systems work. Just that sheer amazement at how God's creation actually functions as we learn more and more about it in our imperfect ways. So modern biology has been an astounding set of achievements for us. And yet, as I've tried to develop for you, this reductionist approach that we've taken to reaching this has been seductive. It's been seductive because, on the one hand, we've needed it as a practical necessity. As I pointed out to you, methodologically, the reductionist approach has got us to the understanding of how the gene functions. We've been able to break down these very complex living systems into smaller units that, in the laboratory at least, we can manage. But the reductionism and its successes is seductive. Seductive in the sense that, in addition to becoming methodologically reductionist, we've become in some cases, epistemologically reductionist, meaning that we think this is the only way to understand the systems, and in the worst case scenario, ontologically reductionist, in that we think that the very basis of living systems is in fact simply their simplest units. In the case of molecular biology, what this means is that some people, not all biologists, but some biologists have come to the belief that in fact everything can be understood if we only understand or know the sequence of the DNA. This was expressed very early on by James Watson, one of the two men responsible for our understanding of DNA structure, when he argued that the goal of modern biology would be to understand everything about biology in terms of the chemicals that make up life. And his goal then would be to explain all of life, everything there is to know about being a human, by simply understanding the genes that are in the human, by knowing the sequence of the DNA. That's sort of the ultimate ontological reductionism, we might say. Now, where has that led? What is the sort of goal of that and the ultimate kind of project that comes out of that? Well, one direction that's led in is a field called biotechnology. In biotechnology, we have, in fact, a practical use of this information that we've gotten from molecular biology. We have the ability in biotechnology to manipulate, in some sense, the genetic information. So what I'd like to do now is talk a little bit about the history of biotechnology, about what biotechnology is and can do, and about where biotechnology might be going. By biotechnology, we really mean a wide variety of techniques. It's often a confusing term. Biotechnology can be everything from large fermenters, large-scale fermenters that are used in industrial production of bacterial products, something that's been going on for a long, long time, all the way to the actual genetic manipulations that we generally think of in terms of biotechnology. So for now, let me focus your attention on just the genetic manipulations the process of making molecules that have come to be called recombinant DNA molecules. Now, the word recombinant DNA means that we've taken two pieces of DNA and recombined them into one piece of DNA. Now, recombination takes place in a normal cell all the time. Pieces of DNA in your cells are breaking apart and coming back together in new combinations as you make gametes. But that's not what we mean in this case. 
Recombinant DNA in this case really means taking two pieces of DNA that come from separate sources, separate organisms, completely unrelated perhaps, and joining them together, and here's the important part, in the test tube, outside of the cell. Okay, so this is an in vitro, as it's called, in vitro being the Latin for in glass, an in vitro technology in the test tube. Now, when this was first discovered, oh, about 20 years ago or so, that one could do this, that one could take certain enzymes and take pieces of DNA and manipulate them in a test tube, and I'll describe the process in a little more detail in a bit. When it was discovered about 20 years ago that this could be done, mainly by Herb Boyer at Stanford and his colleagues, they went to a meeting on the East Coast, one of the Gordon conferences that are held in Vermont and New Hampshire during the summer. These are very prestigious research conferences that take place every year at small schools around the New England area. And at one of these meetings, took place in, I think, 1974, Herb Boyer and his colleagues reported their ability to be able to join in a test tube DNA that came from two different organisms and make a recombinant molecule. Very often in the early days of recombinant DNA, such molecules were called chimeric DNA, a reference to the mythological creature, the chimera, which as you recall was a creature that had the head of a lion, the body of a goat, the tail of a snake. So this idea of chimeric would be taking pieces of DNA from different organisms. Now, when this was reported at the Gordon Conference, an interesting thing happened. Several scientists in attendance at the meeting said, perhaps we should stop and think about this. Perhaps what we've got here is a power or an ability to do a set of experiments that may yield some results which we're not sure we want to have happen. This is interesting because in the history of science, and the recent history of science, it's been very seldom that scientists have been reflective on the nature of their experiments. But in this case, a group of scientists at that meeting wrote a letter to one of the prominent journals, Science, and asked that consideration be given to what the results of such experiments might be. Remember, we're combining pieces of DNA that in nature don't normally combine. So a meeting was held in, I think, 1975 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. At this meeting were several Nobel laureates and the people who had done the work, Herb Boyer and the others. It was a meeting that was held just to discuss the potentialities of this work and what might or might not be done. I had the good fortune at the time of being a postdoctoral fellow at MIT, and I remember the meeting was taking place in a conference room down the hall from my laboratory where I was working. And so everybody was abuzz about the great luminaries in science who were coming to this meeting. We'd see them walking down the hall in and out during that day. So we knew something big was going on. Now, the result of that meeting at MIT was a letter that all of the attendees at the meeting signed. And the letter called for what everyone said would be a moratorium on these experiments. They had a call to the scientific community to not do more of these kinds of experiments until it could be discussed in greater detail. This was a fascinating development because it meant at the time that the scientists were being reflective. Now, out in the community, as news of the kinds of experiments that could be done, the kinds of DNAs that could be created was getting out, fears were rising, both in the academic community and in the larger community. It turned out, for instance, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that there was a confrontation between the city government and the universities, MIT and Harvard, over whether such experiments should even be allowed. The Cambridge city government held a series of meetings 
at which testimony was taken from scientists on both sides of the issues. And this went on as a background to this moratorium that had been called. But the result of the moratorium was a meeting that was held at the Pacific Grove Conference Center in Monterey in 1976. And at that meeting, experts who were biologists, who were ethicists, philosophers, legal experts, experts from the government, all came together in a three or four day conference to discuss what should be done. And what came out of the Monterey or Pacific Grove meeting as it's called, the Silomar Conference Ground is where it was held, what came out of that meeting was a set of guidelines for doing this kind of work. A set of guidelines that were put in the hands of the government so that anyone who had research which was funded by the government or by government sources or in any way was tied into government contracts would be subject to a set of regulations for doing the work. The regulations would involve what kind of experiments could be done and the way that the experiments could be done. The conference suggested guidelines for the safety of both the experiments and the experimenters as well as the general public. Such things as organisms being used that could not grow outside the laboratory. The first bacterial strain that was allowed to be used for these experiments was one that had no possibility of growing outside of a laboratory environment. It was so enfeebled genetically. It's created so that it could only exist in the very specialized laboratory conditions which fed it the things it needed. So things like that, which were called biological containment, were put into place. Physical containments were designed, where barriers between the experiments and the outside world were put in place that would decontaminate anything that came out. Now, recall that the public, maybe even some of the academic community, were worried about the possible creation of new kinds of life from joining these pieces of DNA. Some people talked about the creation of monsters, genetic monsters that would come up. Now, in the long run, 20 years later, we've learned that that's not really the issue that in fact much of the things that have happened through recombinant DNA have not been in the form of creating monsters or new kinds of life. We'll come to what the real issues turned out to be in a moment. Nonetheless, at the time this body of regulations was put into place and a group was founded within the government called the Recombinant DNA Advisory Committee, or RAC as it's known for short. Now, one of the consequences of RAC, or the Recombinant DNA Advisory Committee, was that each institution carrying out such research under their aegis or under their approval would have to have in its local setup an organization similar to the Recombinant DNA Advisory Committee, and they were called Institutional Biosafety Committees. Every university has one. We have one here at the University of Arizona. I serve on it as a panel member. The Institutional Biosafety Committee has to include, by law, not only academicians, that is scientists and others, but also members from the community. So for instance, our Institutional Biosafety Committee has a federal judge on it, has a woman from the community who is a nurse in practice. Various people are brought into this committee from the community so all views can be represented. And all research that's done that has to do with recombinant DNA or anything related to recombinant DNA has to be approved by this committee before permission is given for the scientists to do it. This is again a result of the Asilomar Conference, the agreements that were reached. As soon as the agreements were reached and put in place, the moratorium, the voluntary moratorium was lifted and it was said that now everybody can go to work. 
Now, we'll come later to whether this really satisfied all of the issues that were being raised by the philosophers and by the ethicists and others. Now, we'll come in a moment to whether or not the institution of these regulations and these committees actually satisfied the philosophers and the ethicists who were concerned about recombinant DNA issues. But nonetheless, putting these things in place, putting these guidelines in place, allowed the research community to go forward with the experiments. Now, let me describe in a little more detail what these experiments actually entail. As I said, recombinant DNA is taking two pieces of DNA from two different organisms, let's say from a bacterium and a human, and putting them together in a test tube. Well, how can that be done? Well, it turns out that the experiments that led to the ability of this being done came from a variety of different sources. Mainly what we had was the discovery of certain tools that could be used. I say the word tools in the sense of engineering because we actually call this genetic engineering in the sense that we're actually constructing something the way an engineer might construct something. So just as the physical engineer uses tools that come from physics in the sense of the equipment that's used to do things, both electrical equipment or physical equipment, in the case of the genetic engineer, we use tools which come from life, tools in the form of enzymes. Now enzymes, as I mentioned earlier, catalyze reactions. And what had been discovered prior to the ability to make recombinant DNA were a series of enzymes which could cut DNA into specific pieces and then rejoin the DNA in new ways. So you could take some human DNA and some bacterial DNA, you could cut it with these enzymes, take the fragments and basically weld them together, ligate them we call it, into new arrangements, okay? So now we make a recombinant DNA molecule in the test tube, which is in the form of a molecule very often called a plasmid, which is a circular molecule that has the property that if you put it into a cell by itself, it can replicate, meaning it can grow and propagate. So the next step in making our recombinant DNA molecule, which has been created in the test tube, is to insert it into a cell, to put it into a bacterial cell and allow it to grow and replicate and make many, many copies of itself. Once having done that, we can now isolate a culture of those cells and grow them, and now we have a source of that DNA. Very often, this is called cloning. We say we've cloned the DNA. Now, I'll come to another definition of cloning a bit later when we talk about cloning cells or cloning animals, because these terms can be confusing. Right now, we're only talking about cloning DNA. The reason it's called cloning is because of our bacterial host cell. That is, we take this piece of DNA and we have it growing inside this bacterial cell. So what's the advantage of this if we've got now DNA growing in this bacterial cell? And now we come to the ways in which biotechnology itself can be used. What has it done for us? What have we gotten out of this? Well, the original idea was simply to see if it could be done to see what would happen if you did this. What happens if you put a piece of bacterial DNA together with human DNA and grow it in a bacterial cell? But very early on it was realized that if you could do that, and since all of life uses exactly the same genetic code, exactly the same way of making proteins, of expressing genes, what would happen if you put a gene from a human into a bacterial cell and got the bacterial cell to express that gene. So for instance, suppose you took the human gene for the protein insulin. Insulin, of course, as you all know, I'm sure, 
is the protein we need to help us correctly metabolize sugars. People who are diabetics are very often deficient in insulin and need to take injections of insulin in order to live. Otherwise, they go into an insulin coma or a shock. Now, more often than not, before this technique came around, people were getting insulin from animal sources. So that it was either pig insulin or cow insulin that was obtained after slaughter of those animals. And that worked, except that it wasn't exactly the same as the human insulin. And in addition, very often, people would develop allergic reactions to it because it was a different protein than their own. So the idea came, what if we could take the gene for human insulin, put it into a bacterial cell, grow up now huge vats of bacteria, and purify insulin from those bacteria because they'd be making it. And this was one of the first major achievements of the biotechnology industry, was the production of human insulin. So now virtually every diabetic is getting actual human insulin produced from a bacterial cell, indistinguishable from the normal protein that people have in their cells. This achievement was then followed with a variety of other kinds of products made by this recombinant technology. So we have bacteria now that can be producing any number of human products or human hormones. And just in this morning's paper is the report of a new one. In this case, a protein called vascular endothelial growth factor. This is a protein that during embryonic life stimulates the growth of blood vessels. And the idea in the report in the paper this morning, which I just read, was that in place of doing surgery as a bypass on patients who have heart problems, what if you just injected this hormone in and stimulated their own vascular system to grow a bypass around the blocked artery? A very interesting idea, which is now being tried experimentally on people with blocked veins in their legs, and seems to work. Again, a product of recombinant DNA technology. The human hormone is expressed in a bacterial cell, purified and used in this way. So we have a variety of products now for human health. We have another side of this, and that's the agriculture industry. We can make a variety of products for agriculture in the same way. Genes that can be manipulated to be expressed that are needed for agriculture. Now, pretty soon, somebody got the idea, well, if we have the gene itself, maybe we can actually get it to do more than just be made in a bacterial cell in a form that can be used. What if we move the gene itself from the bacterium now into another organism and get it to be expressed there? Maybe it would make that organism different. Maybe we could affect the genetics of that organism. In the agriculture field, this was a wonderful idea because now we could engineer plants in a certain way. For instance, most recently, tomatoes have been engineered in this way by moving genes into them to make them more commercially stable in transport. The so-called flavor saver tomato, which is the trade name. Plants have been engineered to be frost resistant, for instance, so that when the cold weather comes, they don't die as easily. Plants have been engineered in this way to make them resistant to disease, so that insects which might eat on the leaves of the plant get a toxin that kills them and therefore leave the plant alone or don't destroy the plant. So an insecticide, a sort of natural insecticide, is engineered into the plant. All of these ideas have come from the biotechnological use of taking genes from one organism and now putting them into a new organism and having them function. What if you took genes and moved them into humans? What if you have a patient who is missing or is defective in a certain gene who has a mutation that is life-threatening. 
And now you can take the gene for the good form of that protein, let's say, and move it into that patient and, in fact, cause their problem to not be as severe. This was really a big dream of the early biotechnology industry. And the name given to this was gene therapy. Gene therapy. So, for instance, one of the more recent uses of gene therapy has been for the disease cystic fibrosis. Now, cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease. That means it's inherited as a defective chromosome. It's one of the most common genetic diseases in the human population. In the case of cystic fibrosis, the patients who are affected often die very young. Without treatment, they won't live very long at all. They have severe problems with their lungs. They can't clear their lungs. They're constantly clogged up with mucus. And they often have problems with secretion of enzymes from their pancreas. For years, no one knew what the actual biochemical problem was with these patients, and so it was almost impossible to treat them. Well, through biotechnology, the gene that's responsible for the protein here in cystic fibrosis was discovered. Turns out that it's a gene that regulates the flow of chloride ions across the membrane of the cells. There's a protein that's made that regulates that flow. And in the case of cystic fibrosis, the protein is defective. Now comes the biotechnological scenario. What if we take a good version of that gene and move it into a patient who has the defective version or non-functional version? And this is actually being tried. The gene has been isolated, has been cloned as we say. The gene has been put into a form which can be given to a patient. The patient's lungs are treated so they inhale a substance which carries the gene into their lung tissue. And if it works, the gene replaces in their lungs the defective protein with the good version of it, and they see improvement. Now, it hasn't worked as well as expected, but it's one of the early attempts at what we call gene therapy. Again, one of the kinds of outgrowths from biotechnology that had been hoped for very early on. A fourth use I'll mention of biotechnology is somewhat a trivial in a sense, but it's in the popular conscious, so I want to raise it. And that's the idea of using biotechnology and biotechnology approaches for forensics, so-called DNA fingerprinting. The fact that each of us differs slightly in our genetic information, slightly enough that using biotechnology and very, very sensitive techniques, we can actually detect slight differences in the DNA from each individual has been another outgrowth of this industry. And now, in courts all over the world, really, the DNA fingerprints of suspects are being taken and being used as evidence in trials. So another sort of side industry has grown up in testing DNA in a forensic manner. Now, the final use of biotechnology I want to come to is the one that leads us into our next subject. And that's the idea that by actually isolating the gene from an organism, a particular target gene, we have in our hands then, literally in the laboratory in a test tube, this DNA, this gene. Now, once we have that, you remember our paradigm, DNA to RNA to protein, our information flow. We remember that in the DNA is a series of bases, A's, G's, C's, and T's, the sequence of which reveals to us in our understanding of this information flow through the genetic code, what is the protein that's made by that gene, and therefore what is the product of that gene. So if we have this DNA that's a gene, and we actually look at the sequence of it, we can learn the product of the gene. So scientists very early realized that a basic use of this technology, never mind the applications to agriculture and the applications to medicine, 
a basic use of the technology would be to understand the structure of a particular gene. And so early on in the technology, everybody in laboratories around the world latched onto it in order to just simply understand the genes with which they were working. In my own laboratory, as a virologist, we were cloning and sequencing genes from the viruses we work with in order to understand their structure, see what proteins were produced by them, and how we might look in infected cells for what those proteins did. It was just simply a tool that we could use to have a closer look at the gene, remembering now our paradigm. Now, out of this use of the technology flows another kind of project. What is perhaps the largest single project ever undertaken in the life sciences. A project that's so immense it's gobbling up literally millions of dollars of our budgets for research. And this project is called the Human Genome Project. And it comes right out of our ability to do this very basic thing, which is to sequence a gene. Now, how does the Human Genome Project come into our story? If you look at the Human Genome Project, You'll see that the major funding comes out of the Department of Energy and then another portion of the funding out of the National Institutes for Health. Well, it makes sense that the National Institutes of Health should fund something called the Human Genome Project. But why the Department of Energy? Well, let me tell you what the purpose is of the Human Genome Project. And that will perhaps explain ultimately why Department of Energy is involved. The stated purpose is, originally, to sequence the entire human genome. That is to obtain the linear information about all of the bases in all of human DNA. Now, our DNA is very large compared to a bacterium, and we have billions of these bases. So this project we're talking about is not trivial. It's immense in terms of the amount of data to be gathered and the amount of effort that it would take to do this. In fact, it will ultimately cost us billions of dollars to do this. Now, what is the history of this project, and how is it that the Department of Energy got involved? Well, in order to understand that, I need to take you back to World War II. I need to take you back to a project called the Manhattan Project, which, as you recall, was the project to build a nuclear weapon. Okay? And that project was successful. As we know, the first nuclear weapon was dropped on Hiroshima and then later on Nagasaki, another one. As a result of the Manhattan Project's success, in building this weapon. Many, many thousands of people were killed in Japan. Immediately after that event, the Atomic Energy Commission, which was then in charge of the Manhattan Project, established a committee called the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission. The role of the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission was to, in fact, examine the survivors of those blasts for effects of radiation on their genetic information. Now, you might say, well, why was that done? What purpose could be served by that? Well, there were two reasons. One, the scientists involved wanted to know what would be the effect of radiation on genetic information. And secondly, the government wanted to, in some way, assure the Japanese government after the war that even though we'd done this horrible thing to their citizens, we were not the enemy that they thought. So the Japanese scientists were brought into this project as a way of getting them to examine the people of their own country for effects of radiation. So established was something called the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission. Its goal was then to analyze genetic change, that is mutation. 
Well, their first results with the people who were survivors in and around Nagasaki and Hiroshima was that you couldn't really see any gross changes at the level they were looking. In other words, their techniques were not fine enough to discern changes of that type. Well, with history going by, the Atomic Energy Commission was replaced by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission eventually became part of the Department of Energy. But still within it was this project, originated as the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission. And the project was always seeking finer and finer measurement devices for analyzing the human genetics. It was in 1986 when a meeting was held at Alta, Utah, sponsored by the Department of Energy, at which molecular biologists were invited to present information on how DNA could be sequenced. And it was basically at that meeting where the Department of Energy said to the molecular biology community, look, if we gave you all the money you needed, could you sequence the entire human genome? Now imagine you're the scientist sitting there saying, wait a minute, all the money I need? Sure, we can do that, we can do that. And so a group was formed, a project was initiated to sequence the entire human chromosome. It's very interesting that when the initial proposal was made, to do this. One idea that was put forward was that the entire project could take place at Los Alamos National Laboratories where the bomb was built. The idea being that here was a place that built this horrible weapon of destruction. Maybe it could be used in a reverse sense to understand the entire human chromosome, to be the place where that was accomplished. In fact, I've heard maybe a fallacious rumor that one early name for the project was the New Manhattan Project. Now, people realized immediately that would be a bad thing to name something of this magnitude after that project. So, Human Genome Project became the name. And rather than locating it at Los Alamos completely, although a component of it is there, the data analysis part is there, it is located literally at laboratories all over the country. Many, many researchers are involved. So, the Department of Energy originally funded this research. Now, you can imagine what happened at NIH. As soon as they heard that this project was on the way, they said, we have to have a part of that also. After all, this is health and human services. That's who NIH works for or is sponsored under. So NIH has a part of the project also. The annual budget right now for the project is around $200 million. It's been in existence now for about six or seven years. And the projected time to completion was originally 15 years. So we're looking at another seven or eight years until we think the sequencing will be completed. The goals of the project have changed since it started in ways that I'll describe in a moment. Now, the funding that I spoke about is just in the United States. There are two other components to the Human Genome Project. One is in Europe called HUGO, the Human Genome Organization. And the other is in Japan. So the three of them work together. In fact, there are biannual meetings which happen of all project scientists to see where things are going. Now, the original goals of the project were to, as I said, sequence and clone the entire human genome. But that's changed because people realized as they got to working on this that the human genome is much more complex than just a linear sequence of bases. In fact, there are large areas of the human genome where information is not contained necessarily, that are structural regions of the chromosome. And so one problem is, what do we sequence? And so the strategy changed from simply just going in and sequencing every piece of DNA from a human to actually locating first all of the genes. 
And so it changed into first a mapping project, as it's called. Now, I remember way back to Morgan and Sturdivant's days in Columbia in the early part of the century, chromosome mapping was being done. And this was also being done with humans in a sense, that we understood certain things about human DNA in terms of where genes were located. But now, the project was to really get down to basics and seek and locate on a map every human gene possible. And so that became goal number one. And then goal number two was, once we've located the genes, now let's go and sequence them. The idea here was ultimately to have the sequence of every human gene in a large database that could be accessed by anybody, presumably. Where is the project as we speak? Well, the mapping of the genome has gone a long way. You can go online on the World Wide Web to certain sites at NIH, and anyone who wishes to can look up any human chromosome and find out what genes are known there, what do we know is located there. There are a variety of different strategies that have been used to locate them, and all of that is explained on the World Wide Web in much greater detail than I need to go into in this particular series. The project is about 25 to 30 percent complete overall, although the mapping has gone a lot further than the sequencing itself. The sequencing is also moving along very rapidly. Any laboratory that wishes can pick out any gene that hasn't been sequenced and learn and discover the sequence of bases, and then that sequence is placed into a database, a computer database, and virtually everybody has access to it. I say virtually because I'll come to what that access really means a little bit later. So the database is building, and again, that's available to most people on the World Wide Web, as a matter of fact. One can go and look at this. So this massive project is underway. Some scientists objected to it from the beginning. Why would somebody object? Well, there were two kinds of objections raised. One objection was an economic one. This is going to eat up huge amounts of our research budget. If we're going to spend $200 million a year on medical research out of the NIH budget, for instance, and whatever chunk comes from NIH, then where are we going to pay for the rest of the research that needs to go on? Is this going to be all that we do, or are we going to take things away from research on HIV and a cure or a stoppage to the disease AIDS? Are we going to take work away from heart ailments? What are we going to choose to do with our money if we're going to spend most of it on sequencing the human genome? So that was one concern. Note that biology had never really confronted this before. Physics was used to what we call big science massively expensive projects to build cyclotrons, for instance. The space program, which is again a massive expenditure of money, was already known to the engineering community, to the astrophysics community, let's say. But biology had never really done big science. Everybody's laboratories, everybody's research projects were really small compared to this. I mean, a large research grant would be already a half million dollars. That would be a relatively large program at the time this project started. So now we're talking about committing very large amounts of money to one project. So that concerns some scientists, the allocation of funds. The second concern for some scientists was the ethical, legal, and philosophical implications of this, societal implications of the work. What are we attempting to learn? Is this something that is correct to do for the human genome? The issue here was more one of should this experiment be done in the flavor of what happened with the moratorium issue on recombinant DNA when that was first raised. In other words, should we stop, should we pause and analyze this and say, do we really want to do this?
Now, as distinct from the early 70s or mid-70s when the moratorium was raised and everybody voluntarily said, yes, let's stop and consider this. Now in the late 80s, with pressure from the research community, with pressure from the funding agencies, and most importantly, with pressure from the industrial people who stood to benefit from this technology tremendously, no moratorium was proposed. Everybody said, of course we want to do this. Let's go ahead and do it. Why are we even thinking about this? It's obvious we need this information. Now, the only thing that happened was that the project said, let's at least discuss, as we're doing the work, let's at least discuss the implications. And so, 3 to 5% of the budget each year is set aside for a project called Ethical, Legal, and Social Implications of the Human Genome Project, so-called ELSI, E-L-S-I funds. And this money then funds studies of the implications of the project. But notice that the project is ongoing. This is not a moratorium. It's a set of studies that are happening while the data is being accumulated. In fact, while the data is being used. Okay? So in the end, the Human Genome Project launches into its operation in the absence of any real discussion of whether it should proceed. So the second set of objections is sort of channeled off into this ELSI pathway while the project proceeds apace. So now we have modern biology having reached this pinnacle of understanding, we'll say, of the human genome and of DNA. We have a language and a theory which supports that understanding. We have a philosophical stance which is both enriching in our understanding and our knowledge, but at the same time seductive in the approach, meaning that we're getting into this trap of thinking that what we really are is only that sequence of DNA. Some people are, at least people like, unfortunately, James Watson in his statements. And now this community of scientists has been given this pile of money and this technology to now use it on the human genome so we can actually accomplish this task of sequencing the entire human genome. This is a very critical juncture for molecular biology, for modern biology, because we have at our disposal now the ability to do something that had never been done before, to get some understanding about human biology from which some decisions can be made that are quite critical in what will happen next. Now, the project is sponsored, as I said, by DOE and NIH. Many scientists are involved. Many laboratories are involved in it. The data is being accumulated and is being stored for public access. Very little discussion outside the ELSI funds appears to be happening, except that in every day's newspaper, you will read some new research advance that has been made possible either directly from the Human Genome Project or from somebody's side project that stems out of it. The one I mentioned earlier today about endothelial vasculature and the hormone that causes it to be stimulated and the research that's going on as to whether that can replace bypass surgery ultimately comes directly out of the Human Genome Project. The discovery of that hormone, its cloning and its production stems from this project. So we're seeing it affect us as we sit here and speak. Now one thing that it affects us in a great way is the ability to detect in individuals alterations in their DNA. Now, whose DNA is being sequenced in this project? A question that's often asked by students and by everyone. If this is sequencing the human genome, whose DNA are we sequencing? Mine? Yours? Whose is it? 
Well, as it turns out, it's probably about 100 people's DNA. When I say that, I mean that in laboratories around the world, there are, we'll say, banks of data, banks of information in the form of DNA from conservative estimate, maybe 100 to 200 people that have been accumulated over time for various reasons. For instance, in one laboratory in Utah, they accumulate DNA information from families that have certain genetic characteristics they wish to study. There's another database in France that's similar. There's one in Japan. So the DNAs that are being looked at are ones that already had been isolated. Clearly, we can't sequence everybody's yet. That's not the object of this study. So the information to be gained is going to be something that will be put into a database with the proviso that we understand it's not everybody's, it's sort of just from this limited sampling. And what we're really trying to learn is what is the location of every gene. But in the process of doing that, very often the location is learned by examining a particular genetic defect. I mentioned cystic fibrosis. The defect might be a propensity to breast cancer. The defect might be a propensity to heart disease. So as we learn the location of these genes that are involved in cystic fibrosis, in breast cancer development, in heart disease, we're also learning the location of the defects in those genes. What comes out of that instantly is a way to tell whether an individual patient has that defect. Whether an individual patient actually has the defective protein that might give her a greater risk to breast cancer, the so-called BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene. Or whether a patient is likely to develop heart disease later in life. Now, if you have that information, then right away you can test patient populations for the presence of those defects. So the most immediate result of the Human Genome Project has been the development of our ability to test for the presence of certain genetic traits in the population. So test kits are made that actually can be used in the doctor's office to tell a patient whether or not they fall into a particular category of a particular defect. This is the real immediate outcome of this project as the sequences are being stored in the database. And the drug companies, the pharmaceutical industry, is very much interested in these kinds of tests because they can obviously sell them to physicians and people can be given this information. Now what I want to consider with you next time is the use of the Human Genome Project, the use that stems from having these kinds of tests available, the long-term goals of the project versus the short-term fallout from this kind of testing, and then go from that into the general ethical questions, I think, that are raised by the Human Genome Project, by biotechnology, and by other such technologies which come out of our abilities in modern biology to manipulate the genome. So we'll begin there next time. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.